This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, it's pretty clear now that Trump will make hatred and fear of refugees and immigrants a central theme of his re-election campaign next year. And so we turn to Viet Nguyen. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, and he says, call me a refugee not an immigrant. His book, The Displaced, featuring writing by refugees, is out now in paperback. We'll talk with him about it later in this hour. But first, democracy is not doing well these days. Trump Watch starts right now. Democracy is not doing well these days, and so we turn to Astra Taylor, Chris Hayes describes her as a fascinating, unique, eccentric, brilliant person. She's a writer, she's a filmmaker, and she's an activist. And her latest film is What is Democracy? She writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, and The Nation. And she has a new book out now. The title is Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. The last time she was here, we talked about a student debt strike. Astra Taylor, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, democracy isn't doing well these days. Look, the the Brits voted in favor of Brexit. Right-wing populist governments have been elected across Europe and in Brazil. In India, voters elected a fascist government headed by Modi. Who was it who warned that democracy devolved into tyranny? Well, that was Plato, right? Plato writing in The Republic, which is the foundational text of Western political philosophy. I like to call it the confounding text of the Western philosophical tradition because it's quite a strange text. But, you know, Plato does famously warn that democracy devolves into tyranny. And that got invoked a lot right after the election of Donald Trump. But I think it's important to um, actually, if we're going to invoke Plato, to to look at what he was responding to. And if, if we read the text closely, we see that he was actually responding to the problem of oligarchy. He said, when the uh, rich and the poor when this divide grows between them, it breaks the city into two cities. You have the city of the rich and the city of the poor, and they they are in opposition. And so it's actually the rich wanting to get richer that sort of sets in motion the city breaking apart. And that speaks to our, our, our problem today, right? A moment when three American billionaires hold as much wealth as the bottom half of the population, and a handful of billionaires do the same globally for all of us on Earth. So it's it's good, though, to go back to those foundational challenges, you know, of democracy, not that ancient Athens was a perfect democracy, but to just see that the problems of self-government have been with us for a long time. And, you know, there's there's something to be learned from from the past, even as we head into an unknown future. Well, your new book is organized around a series of paradoxes. You open by declaring that the history of democracy is a history of Oppression, exploitation, demagoguery, dispossession, domination, and uh, abuse sounds pretty bad, but but it's also it's also what? It's also a history of cooperation, of fight for equality. It's a, the history of solidarity. And so the book is organized around these paradoxes in part to help me. So, you know, I'm not a professional academic. I don't have a PhD, but, you know, I, I love philosophy. A lot of my work has to do with philosophy. For the last eight years, I've been working as an organizer, working around issues of economic justice. So the student debt strike we launched in 2015 has won over a billion dollars 
for student debtors and is now formerly part of Elizabeth Warren's platform, Bernie Sanders platform. So organizing has been my milieu. And, and what you realize as an organizer is that you know, democracy is really hard to do. It's very frustrating. You never perfectly get to reach your ideals. And so the, the book is me thinking through why democracy is so challenging. And so I think it has to do with the fact that it, is, it inherently involves these tensions. So each chapter is a paradox, freedom and equality, expertise and mass opinion, coercion and choice. And we have to hold these poles in tension. You can't just come on one side and say, okay, that's it. We're going to have freedom and we're going to sacrifice equality, or we're going to only care about the present and sacrifice the future. You can't do that. And so the book looks at how these tensions have been worked with, uh, how we have failed to balance them in the past. I try to use philosophy, uh, journalism, uh, you know, personal reflections to just give a, a different, to put a different angle on democracy, to not, not say it's just, you know, something we had in 2015 and now we're sliding away, but to say, no, it's actually this horizon we're constantly working towards, you know, progress moves forward, progress moves back. But democracy is, is very challenging. It's worthwhile, but it's challenging. And in, in my book is an attempt to think in a different way why that's so and, and hopefully to help other people stay committed to this frustrating process. Well, democracy in the United States today mostly means voting, and we worry that so many people don't bother to vote. You're one of the few writers I know who quotes Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in a well-ordered city, every man flies to the assemblies under a bad government no one cares to stir a step to get to them. Let's talk about that. Yeah, you know, the largest segment of the electorate, right, are the people who didn't elect anyone, who didn't go to the polls, who didn't vote. I think we have to really ask, you know, multiple questions on this front. I mean, I think one big question is, well, is democracy reducible to just voting? I mean, a lot of people think democracy and elections are synonymous. And I think democracy is, has to be much more than elections. I think we need to democratize other spheres of life, the workplace, our education sector, the economy, all of these things. But, you know, elections are really important and people fought and died to expand the franchise. And, you know, it does say something very troubling that, that turnout's so low, but you know, turnout is low for multiple reasons. One, this country was founded on um, huge swaths of the population being denied suffrage rights. I mean, the right to vote is for all is not something that's in the Constitution in the United States. So outsiders had to fight for it, to fight for inclusion. And with every step forward, you know, there were obstacles put in the past, ways of engineering electoral dominance for the in-group so that even though there would be more voters, power could be maintained. So we have a situation with gerrymandering now in a state like North Carolina where Democrats can win the majority of votes but only get three out of 13 seats in the city legislature. So, you know, I think that, that the thing is that that has a effect. Uh, for the film, this the book actually emerged uh, or sort of companions with a documentary I made called What is Democracy? And I asked people on the street, you know, what is democracy to you? And people didn't have very profound answers to that question or personal answers to that question because I think we don't do very much democracy in our lives, right? We're told democracy is election, so that's something you only do every four years or not at all. But what I found when I spoke to younger people who said, you know, no, I don't vote, was that they it wasn't apathy alone. Um, that made them not want to vote. For example, these young men in Florida who, you know, were very cynical on the surface, it turned out that they had vivid memories of 2000 and the hanging chads and the fact that the Supreme Court, five votes, gave the election to George Bush, not Gore. So there, there was this sense of a kind of informed cynicism, informed apathy. And I think that's what we have to struggle against to say, yes, I know you're cynical, but that's because 
the struggle for even a democracy of one person, one vote is not over. And one person, one equally weighted vote is the next horizon that we need to reach for. I've heard that democracy and capitalism go together. Is this true? Well, that's what I was told. <laughs> that's what I was definitely told growing up. You know, I'm 39 years old, so that was what I heard through my 20s and the aughts. And, and it's something that I don't think is widely believed anymore, at least not among the younger generation, right? Polls show that young people over now over 50% would prefer to live in a socialist society than a capitalist one. And I think what they mean by that is that they'd like to live in a democratic society. They'd like to live in a society where they weren't having to go deeply into debt just to get an education, where they could actually go see a doctor, have the chance to retire, and therefore be able to have the free time citizenship requires. What I found uh, doing interviews for the the book and for the film was that actually there's a, a young young conservatives have picked the other side of the dichotomy. I think liberal young people are, are sort of getting a renewed interest in democracy. What I found talking to young conservatives is they were very cynical of democracy. They understood that democracy would mean mean the majority of people being able to live a decent life, and that would mean taxes being raised on the rich and privilege being shared. And so what I heard from people was actually, um, I'm talking 22-year-olds <laughs> in college saying, democracy is just a buzzword. Uh, you know, we need the Electoral College. We need the Senate, which is, you know, very unequal, representative system, unrepresentative system. Uh, and so what, I think we have a, a very interesting divide. We don't know where it's going to go, where this new generation splitting. And some people are embracing capitalism and some people are embracing democracy. I googled the question, why do capitalism and democracy go together? One of the first results was a link to an article in the Financial Times. I clicked on the link and got a page that said I had to subscribe to the Financial Times online. I had to pay them money to find out why capitalism and democracy go together. Yeah, that seems exactly it. I mean, I think that's to to feel that they do. I think you have to have that economic economic baseline, right? I think what's interesting in this moment, you know, we often hear the threats of this moment phrase is one of populism, right? There's a kind of yeah. populist resurgence on the left and the right, and I so I expected these young conservatives to be speaking about a sort of silent majority or actually, you know, we speak for the people. But what I heard was actually a much more old fashioned, classically elitist, you know, aristocratic thing of democracy is the unruly masses. The founding fathers were right to warn against democracy. We're a republic and we need controls on the people to maintain our status as the elite that we are entitled to be. Well, one of the best things you can say about democracy, at least in the United States, is that the Republicans are afraid of it. That That's why they're working so hard to make it harder to vote, to gerrymander election districts, to change the way the census counts people. And uh, you're right, the Founding Fathers also dis distrusted democracy and created all kinds of obstacles to rule by the people. They called it separation of powers. And, of course, the Republicans today continue to try to expand that. Yeah, they do. And I think this is why people uh, of a more progressive inclination really need to think about the, the way democracy is structured. And, you know, I know for people who are a bit more radical, sometimes it can almost seem like this voting is not even worth much thought, right? But but in the book, there's a chapter on structure and spontaneity. And it's the fact that democracy, again, there's this tension, right? It needs to be these spontaneous moments of rebellion, of protest, but then we need to make rules. We need rulemaking. We need to sort of cement some of the insights of those more 
spontaneous expressions of, of, of democratic spirit. And so the rules of the game are, are really important. And, you know, Republicans are paying a lot of attention to them. That exact, That is exactly why they care about census questions, why they care about districts and how uh, votes are apportioned. And, um, and so what I would like to see progressives look at is not just how to make good on, on things like independent redistricting committees uh, to try to take, to try to rebalance the way districts are drawn at the state level, but to start thinking of more democratic ways of structuring our democracy. We have to remember the, the idea of one person, one vote, you know, only became part of American jurisprudence in the 60s with the civil rights movement. So I want to ask, you know, what's the next horizon? Can we fight for a more proportional system? Can we fight for ranked choice voting, which is gaining ground in states like Maine and in places like Lowell, Massachusetts, so that people aren't throwing away their votes when they want a different kind of candidate? Uh, could we use, the book looks and says, could we use sortition, which is a kind of random selection in order to find other ways of incorporating people from the, from the populace into uh, structures of government. The ancient Greeks who, you know, we credit with being the first Democrats, whether or not they were, they, they, they were very clear on this. Aristotle said, elections are aristocratic because the rich and the well-born, uh, sorry, and the, uh, and the charismatic, we might say the reality TV stars tend to win. And uh, selection, this kind of random process is actually democratic. So that's how their society was governed for the most part. And um, we see citizens assemblies randomly selected in places like Ireland today, making progress on issues like abortion rights. So, you know, we need to be creative. And that's the point. Democracy is not something we, we already have and we need to perfect. It's something we need to create through imagination and through struggle. When you asked people what democracy meant, a lot of them said freedom. Isn't that kind of a problem? I think it is. I mean, I, I expected freedom. I mean, I think freedom can be a very beautiful, beautiful concept. And freedom is a concept that was developed by people who were enslaved, who were in, held in captivity. In fact, it was a, a concept according to the Harvard historian Orlando Peterson, that first came from women, because women were the first were the first slaves, actually. And so this is a concept that we hear in the civil rights movement, the, the desire for, for freedom, you know, freedom struggle. But it's also been, there's also a, a strand of thinking of freedom in a conservative vein that is not collective, but purely individual. There was a real attempt to equate freedom with the freedom to consume, with essentially shopping, <laughs> with uh, the American American dream being a sort of dream of this of the mall of the supermarket, uh, and equality, which is you know a necessary twin to freedom, has sort of fallen by the wayside. So I I was very surprised that nobody I spoke to said that democracy was equality, and I think that's a problem because at the heart of democracy is the idea that the people rule, and if it has it has a lot of questions in it. Who are the people and how do how do the people rule, right? That's open for debate. But the one, one of the few things that's sort of essential to it is that the people are equals, right? That we govern ourselves as equals. And so there's political equality and economic equality because if, because if there's a huge divide between the rich and the poor, the rich are going to be more powerful and undermine that political equality at the center of democracy. And so I think we really need to put equality back at the center of our, of our thinking, um, of our public debates, and I, I think there are some encouraging signs that we're beginning to do that. But certainly equality has been the unloved twin. And I note, I note in the book the fact that there's all this propaganda for freedom, the Statue of Liberty, right? We don't really have 
the statue of equality. We don't, we talk about our civil liberties. <laughs> yes. We don't talk about our civil equalities. And I think we need to do some propagandizing for equality because it's a wonderful principle. Another way that democracy is defined is a system based on the consent of the governed. But consent, of course, can be, for instance, consenting to Trump can be based on ignorance or prejudice. Consent can be purchased. So what do you think of defining democracy as based on consent of the governed? I mean, I think that we have to look at things historically. And so this idea of consent of the government was so profound when it emerged, because if you're living in feudalism or you're living under a monarch, it doesn't matter whether you consent or not. It's That's a question that's off the table. And so that's a radical, wonderful idea to say, no, actually, consent of the government matters. And the ruling elite's church and the monarchs feared this concept for good reason. The thing is that it's hard to anticipate how a concept can can evolve or can be co-opted. And so now what we have is a system where the idea is, okay, well, we're consenting to whatever job we, we happen to have, even if that's actually the only job that's available to us. So in a sense, there's this idea that we're consenting to our own exploitation we're giving our tacit consent to a government that doesn't represent us if we don't vote, for example. I think the problem with the emphasis on consent is, is essentially one of, of power relations. We have to understand that not every choice is a free choice, that some choices are forced because there's no alternative. When I'm choosing between my terrible private insurance options here in New York State, I don't really consider that to be much of a choice. I don't really feel like I'm consenting to have to pay $1,500 a month for my household to get health insurance, it's because there's no public option on on the table. So again, think about the power relations, but then also appreciate that that ideas that might seem limiting now were actually pretty liberatory when they developed. And let's try to devise some ideas that are liberating in this moment, you know, that might become status quo for the next generation. Last question. We've talked about the paradoxes and the problems and the obstacles to democracy. I wonder if when it comes to democracy, you agree with the famous motto of Gramsci, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Well, you know, I end with that wonderful motto um, in in the coda to the book. And it was a book that how should I end this? How should I end this exploration of paradoxes? You know, I could have put aside my philosophical hat and written a little manifesto with, you know, 10 steps to renew democracy. And then I thought, you know, the thing is that in my own work as an activist, what I do is I have to balance my sort of hope and despair over the situation we're in, right? My optimism and my pessimism. And so, yes, you have to balance your hope and your despair as an activist. So as much as I respect Gramsci, and I love his formulation that he's a pessimist of the intellect. He has pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. I looked inside and I thought, I feel the opposite. I feel that my intellect gives me hope because when I look back on human history, people have struggled for justice against incredible odds, odds that are completely alien to me if I, if I take stock. I'm sitting here at my desk with my computer, communicating with my debt strike comrades over email and and Twitter and stuff. It's like, who am I to say that all is lost? Yes, we have a climate crisis and the clock is ticking, but it just almost feels trite to be hopeless. And so, you know, it's my will that, that often feels pessimistic. And so I think engaging our intellect, thinking philosophically about democracy, looking at history is actually immensely rewarding and opens these huge veins of hope that uh, I think can 
propel us forward as we keep fighting for a democratic horizon that we'll never reach, but will hopefully benefit broader and broader numbers of people. Because the alternative is for dem- democracy uh, to to decline, to wither away, to disappear, to maybe devolve into tyranny. And that's an unacceptable thing to acquiesce to. Astra Taylor, her wonderful new book is Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Thank you, Astra. Thank you for having me. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. One of the defining features of Trump's politics, it's no secret, has been the way he's appealed to hatred and fear of refugees and immigrants. Now, refugee writers and refugee lives are featured in a new book. It's called The Displaced, and it's edited by Viet Win. He's the author of three books, including the unforgettable novel, The Sympathizer. It won the Pulitzer Prize. He's the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, and he was selected as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, along with Ta-Nehisi Coates, Sonia Sotomayor, and Barack Obama. He also teaches at USC, where he's Arnold Chair of English Complet and American Studies and Ethnicity. Last time we talked to him here, it was about the sympathizer. Viet Nguyen, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, John. And congratulations on the Academy appointment. Isn't that weird? <laughs> strange to be strange to have my name mentioned in the company of those other names that you. That you well, al- alphabetical order puts you right next to Obama. It, it's a great thing. Well, let's see if the seating chart works out the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you insist on being called a refugee and not an immigrant. Why is that? The immigrant idea in America is very strong. We we call ourselves a nation of immigrants, and it's a part of our mythology that immigrants come here and they achieve the American dream. And I think even at this moment in history where the xenophobic feelings in American society that have always been there – are reaching another peak, even those people who don't like immigrants nevertheless believe in that immigrant idea. Like, of course, immigrants would want to come to the United States because we're awesome. But (laughs) refugees are different. Refugees are unwanted where they come from. They're unwanted where they go to. They're a different legal category. They're a different category of feeling in terms of how the refugees experience themselves. And they're a much more despised category even than immigrants for so many people in the United States. So it's very easy for someone like me to pass himself off as an immigrant, to pretend to be an immigrant, but I feel like I'm doing a disservice. I feel like I'm not speaking the truth, and I feel that it's necessary for people like me who have benefited from being a refugee uh, to acknowledge our existence as such and to advocate for the refugees today. Well, I looked up some of the statistics on refugees today uh, and about Trump's current policy. Last September, Trump slashed the cap on refugees admitted to the United States. Obama, under Obama, the target was 110,000. Trump officially slashed that to 45,000, but this year it looks like only 22,000 will be 
resettled, which is about a fifth of what Obama's target was. If we look at Syrian refugees admitted to the United States, uh, 2016, Obama, around 15,000. 2017, around 3,000. And thus far in 2018, 11. A total of 11. You became a refugee in 1975. You were four years old. What's the story there? How did that happen? Well, we, my parents were fleeing from the Vietnam War, and they were obviously from the southern side, so they were among the losing side. And so along with 130,000 other Vietnamese people who were afraid of communism, they decided to flee the country, and they were among the lucky ones who managed to get out because I think the CIA was estimating there was about a million South Vietnamese people who had some kind of affiliation with the United States who really wanted to leave and couldn't. So this 130,000 group of uh, population ended up in the United States in one of four refugee camps, and my parents and I ended up in Fort Indian Town Gap in Pennsylvania. And that's where my memories begin, uh, in a refugee camp, and being taken away from my parents, because in order to leave one of these camps, you had to have a sponsor. Well, one sponsor took my parents, one sponsor took my 10-year-old brother, and one sponsor took four-year-old me, which, when you're four years old, it's very traumatic to be separated from your parents. Uh, and I speak now as a father of a four-year-old son, and, and, and looking at him, I see myself, and, and I just imagine how painful it would, it would, yes, that, that experience yes. would have been for me and for my parents. So that's where memory begins with this narrative, and that's why I feel, you know, for me, I've never forgotten being a refugee because of that trauma. You write in the introduction to the displaced I do not remember many things, and for all those things I do not remember, I am grateful, close quote. Why is that? If you do any reading into refugee experiences, what you discover is that people who are refugees almost uniformly have <laughs> suffered terribly in trying to escape the country they were fleeing from and in trying to get to the countries that they want to go to. And in the case of just this South Vietnamese population that we're talking about, uh, the refugee experience was horrendous. You know, many, many, many lives were lost. Many terrible things happened to the people who were trying to flee. And at four years old, I didn't remember any of that kind of stuff. My, my brother, who is 10, you know, has, remembers dead paratroopers hanging from the trees yeah. on the mountain route that we were uh, escaping our home city from where we were walking downhill about 180 kilometers trying to make it to a port town to get a boat to Saigon. And that mountain route from the research that I've done as an adult was clogged with tens of thousands of civilians and all their vehicles and property and tens of thousands of South Vietnamese soldiers fleeing as well. It was a nightmare. So no one who's been to that experience has ever forgotten it. And those are traumatic, terrible things to have witnessed. So that's why I'm thankful that I don't actually remember these things myself, and I have the luxury of reconstructing them from other people's memories. You say that refugees like you and your family in America today are both invisible and hyper-visible. Uh, please explain what you mean. Well, by that I mean we share a situation that is completely common for just about any minority or marginalized population in this country or in any other country. We're invisible in the sense that people, the rest of America, doesn't know about our existence and doesn't care to know about our existence. So when my book started to come out, for example, The Sympathizer, I've had many people come up to me and say, well, we were there uh, in 1975 or the 1970s when the Vietnamese refugees started coming to town, and we knew nothing about them, and we never cared to ask. We were invisible. 
But we become hyper-visible when we become a problem, when we become gangsters or when we become visible as welfare cheats and things like that. But there's no in-between. We're not allowed the luxury of just being normal, just being visible like everybody else in, in majority American society. And so we fluctuate then between never being seen and only being seen as a problem. You have a wonderful sentence about being uh, a, a writer about refugees. I keep my tattered memories of being a refugee close to me. Why is that? I think it's easy for people who have undergone some kind of terrible loss or some kind of terrible experience to forget about these things, although it's not easy. It's, it's desirable for them to do so. So I've actually met quite a few refugees who don't acknowledge that they are refugees. They just call themselves immigrants because, again, it's easier to call yourself an immigrant. If you call yourself an immigrant here, uh, you fit. people, people will, will want to hear your heartwarming story about getting to this country and succeeding. Yes. If you say you're a refugee, that's the quickest way to kill a cocktail party conversation <laughs> because people can't relate to that. So that's why I keep those tattered memories close to me because, number one, it's important to, to do this work of reminding uh, other refugees and other Americans that we exist. But number two, it makes me empathetic. It makes me feel for these new refugees and what they're going through. And that's an important thing for me as a writer and a human being to do, because I know that there are some former refugees out there who are saying, you know what, we're the good refugees. We deserve to be here. All these new people from the Middle East or Syria, for example, they're the bad refugees. They're different. We've got to close the door on these people. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. Kind of the purpose of a book like The Displaced is to help us imagine the lives of refugees. But you say in your introduction that this imagining can lead us to deceive ourselves. What do you mean there? Well, I think that this is a part of the problem with literature. You know, literature's strength is built on, on empathy, um, both the empathy of authors and the empathy of readers. We want to get to know other characters, other people from, from different places. And this is a very powerful thing. But it's also deceptive because it's a luxury. I think we, we want to know about terrible situation X and, and sympathetic person Y, and we've read their story, and, and our, our hearts are warmed, and, and our, our emotions are moved. But what happens if we don't do anything? What happens if we just put down that book and pick up another book? What happens if we don't donate money, if we don't get involved in an aid organization? What happens if we don't call our elected officials? What happens if we don't march in the streets? What happens if we don't take action? And I think that's the danger of, of literature, that it can, as much as it awakens our feelings, it can also lull us into a sense of complacency that we've already done something simply by reading about someone's situation. And I should uh, add here that the publisher of The Displaced, Abrams, is donating 10% of the cover price to the International Rescue Committee, one of the one or two leading nonprofits in the world that's been providing humanitarian relief to refugees since World War II. I know you're a supporter of the IRC, and they're an important part of this book. No, absolutely. I think that there are important organizations like the IRC that are carrying out this work. They've been doing it for a long time. You know, there there are, uh, by UN estimates, uh, 22 and a half million uh, refugees in the world right now, um, and that is out of a population of 66 and a half million uh, displaced people, as the UN calls them. Uh, so, if you add all these people up together, they're a very large country. That'd be a country that's larger than France. Yeah. So there's there's pressing need for these types of organizations and and the work that they do. 
One last thing I wanted to ask you about. You had a piece in the New York Times last Sunday, and the title was Don't Call Me a Genius. You, of course, are the winner of what is usually called, in fact, we just called it in introducing you, a MacArthur Genius Grant. Uh, why don't you want people to use that word to describe you? Well, first of all, let me just say, I didn't write that title. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, the whole piece is actually about the, 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 the problems with genius, not that I don't want to be called a genius. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's about this idea that when we say genius nowadays in uh, our society, we're typically talking about some individual of remarkable talent or achievement. And we laud this person and we, and we elevate this person. And it, in my case, you know, it's related to the label that's often put upon someone like me, a writer from a minority or marginalized community. Uh, I have been called a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. Many writers like me have been called that. And a voice for the voiceless is just this kind of thing that we trot out whenever someone is uh, writing about an experience we don't know anything about. And that, that's meant to be a compliment, you know, that this person is exceptional. And that's why it's dangerous. Uh, because when we call someone a voice for the voiceless, what we're really saying is we don't want to hear all the other voices that are out there. It's just easier dealing with one person. And I think that's the same thing with genius. And my, my feeling is that if I've been able to achieve anything as a writer, it's partly, yes, through hard work on my own, but partly also through a whole history of people who have sacrificed before me, other writers who have come before, other voices for the voiceless who have all been forgotten now for the most part, um, my work is made possible by the, you know, all these social and political struggles by Asian Americans, by African Americans, by so, by so many other people that have created the space for someone like me not to be persecuted or discriminated against simply by the fact of my own existence. So for me, genius is actually something that needs to be considered in the context of communities, that one of the older meanings of genius is actually the spirit of a community. And I come out of an Asian American community, Vietnamese American community, whose struggles, again, have made it possible for me to do the work that I do. And I don't think of myself as a voice for them who are voiceless people because they're actually all really, really loud. <laughs> I think that my work is aligned both with literature but also with these social and political movements whose goal is, yes, to get more voices out there, but really to transform the conditions of our society so that we don't have voiceless people anymore. And that's a really long-term struggle that we're engaged in. The Long-Term Struggle. The book is The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. It's edited by Viet Nguyen. Viet, thanks for talking with us today. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much, John. Viet Nguyen's book, The Displaced, is out now in paperback. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 